Our sermon today is taken from Romans 11, 11 through 16. Here is the word of God. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Thus says the Lord. Have you ever really watched a good action film or a drama? where the plot was so very complex that you were not sure exactly how it was going to end, where the good guys were placed in an almost impossible predicament, and it looked like they would never survive or ever overcome their circumstances. And so on the surface, it seemed like evil would ultimately triumph over the good. Well, as Christians, I think when we look at the world around us, we sometimes have a similar experience, don't we? Where sometimes it seems like the bad things in this world overcome the good, like the forces of evil will ultimately triumph over God's people. And you know, Paul dealt with something similar to this in his day, because when it came to the salvation of his Jewish brothers, it seemed as if their unbelief was final, and any hope of them ever being saved was ultimately lost. You see, in Paul's day, there were very few Jews who were being saved and embracing the gospel message. While on the contrary, there were many Gentiles who were accepting it and being brought savingly into the kingdom of God. And so this was a problem for Paul himself, as he expressed great sorrow for the condition of his fellow Jews. And so this raised the question at the beginning of chapter 11, has God rejected his people, the nation of Israel, on account of their unbelief? Was all the promises of God to them ultimately in vain? Well, in chapter 11, verse 1, Paul responds with the resounding, no, absolutely not. And to prove his point, Paul lays out several reasons why God has not rejected Israel. The first reason was the conversion of Paul himself. In spite of incredible odds, Paul came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which itself proved that salvation was possible for every Jewish person. Because if Paul, the self-righteous Pharisee, could be saved, then so could anybody else. The second reason in verse 5 was that God had preserved a remnant of Israel for himself. You see, by grace, God had set aside a small remnant of Jewish believers who, like Paul, had responding savingly to the gospel message and therefore belonged to the true Israel of God by faith. But that didn't change the fact that the vast majority of Jews had refused to accept the gospel. They were still in unbelief. And so the message of the gospel became a stumbling block to them 
as their hearts were temporarily hardened on account of their sin. So only a remnant of Jews were saved. Now, the other reasons that Paul gives to prove that God has not rejected his people, Israel, are found in our passage today in verses 11 through 16. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. And we'll look at our passage today under three headings, three headings. The mystery of redemption involves mercy. The mystery of redemption involves jealousy. And the mystery of redemption revolves the resurrection. But first, the mystery of redemption involves mercy. So I'd like to begin by pointing out that Paul is preaching to a congregation that is made up of mostly Gentile believers who would have probably been somewhat familiar with the customs and practices of the Jewish people. And even though there would have been some Jewish Christians uh, who were part of this congregation as well, for the most part, it was made up of mostly Gentile converts. And these Gentiles were probably in awe of God's glorious plan of redemption, that they had been brought to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, who in redemptive history would have ever imagined that there would be more Gentile believers in the Messiah than there were Jews? And this probably led to a misunderstanding between them of God's relationship with the Jews in general, because many of them at this time were fierce opponents and persecutors of the early church that was now made up of mostly Gentile believers. So you could probably imagine the animosity that existed between Gentile Christians and Jewish unbelievers, and how some of them could have even had an anger and a lack of love towards the Jews as a whole because of their rejection of Christ. So many of these Gentiles began to believe that God was completely finished with the Jewish people and wanted nothing more to do with them on account of their unbelief. Perhaps they were a little bit proud and arrogantly felt like they were superior to the Jews in some way. And Paul, you see, was aware of this. And so his goal was to correct some of the misunderstandings about Jewish people and their relationship with God. And so he says in verse 11, did they stumble in order that they might fall, they being ethnic Israel as a whole? To which he replies, certainly not, by no means. You see, what Paul is saying is that the purpose of God in Israel's stumbling through their unbelief and hardness of heart was not to fully and finally abandon them as a whole and cast them off from his presence. No, Paul tells us that the purpose of their stumbling in verse 11 was that through their trespass, salvation might come to the Gentile. In other words, God's purpose for Israel's hard heart unbelief and rejection of the gospel message was that salvation might come to Gentiles, to people like you and like me. In other words, God's purpose to them was a merciful one. You see, God hardened the heart of many Jews in order that he might have mercy upon many Gentiles. You know, for many of us today, this talk of God's purpose in sin and unbelief is kind of difficult for us to accept. But Paul is giving us an extraordinary behind-the-scenes look at God's plan of redemption. And God is portrayed by Paul as a glorious film director in human history who works all things according to his sovereign plan 
of election. And that includes human sin and unbelief. And this is important for us to remember because sometimes it seems to us as believers like sin and evil triumph in this world. While we as Christians are offering suffering, right, or being persecuted for our faith. So we need to remember that God has a good and merciful plan in world history, and nothing can thwart his purpose, not even sin. So God's purpose for your life as a believer is definitely being accomplished both in and through whatever difficulties you may be going through presently at this moment. God's good purpose for you cannot fail to happen because you are his people. You belong to him, and therefore all things must work together for your good, for those who are in Christ. And there are many examples of this in the Bible, of how God mysteriously overrules human sin in order to accomplish his plan of redemption. You might remember the story of Joseph, how he was sold into slavery by his brothers, and all the trials and sufferings that he personally experienced because of sins that were committed against him. And yet, God used all of it for good to save many Hebrews from the famine in the land of Canaan and to preserve the lives of his people. And after Joseph understood God's purpose in it, he could say with confidence and clarity at the end of his life to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Even the crucifixion of Christ, which is perhaps the greatest example of evil appearing to triumph over the good in this life, happened according to the will of God in order to bring about redemption for people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. And so when Paul says that God used the unbelief of the Jews in order to bring salvation to the Gentiles, he is being entirely consistent with the entire teaching of the Bible. God brings good out of sin and evil. You know, before he died, the Lord Jesus Christ foretold the exact stumbling of Israel that Paul is talking about in our passage today. As he warned the nation of Israel that the kingdom would be taken away from them. You remember the parable of the landowner who sent messengers to collect the profits from his vineyard only to be beaten and killed by the tenants who were in charge of it. Well, finally, he sent his very own son to them, thinking that surely they will respect my son. But no, the evil tenants killed the son as well. And so Jesus says that the landowner would eventually destroy those evil tenants and give the vineyard to others who would pay him the proper proceeds. Matthew 24, 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And that people, my friends, is the church, which is made up of both believing Jews and Gentiles. And so you can clearly see that Israel's stumbling worked according to the purpose of God to bring about redemption for all peoples alike, for people like you and people like me. And understanding the mystery of redemption can help us as Christians to endure difficult seasons in our lives, right? And to remain faithful and patient whenever we encounter adversity in this life. And it looks like evil has the upper hand over us. 
We can remain faithful because we know that God has ordered it for holy, good, and wise purposes. Because we know that whatever situation we might find ourselves in in this life, God is ultimately in control. And all things work for good for those who trust him. Redemption involves mercy. Our second point is that redemption involves jealousy. Look at the end of verse 11. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now here, it seems to us like Paul is pulling back the curtain a little bit, right? And he's letting us in on the mystery of redemption, right? Paul is pulling back the curtain and giving us a glimpse into God's mysterious plan of redemption. And what he's telling us is that not only is God not finished with Israel as a people, but Gentiles being saved was God's goal in order to make the Jews jealous. Now, what does Paul mean when he says that God's goal was to make unbelieving Jews jealous of believing Gentiles? Isn't it a sin to be jealous or to envy someone? And if so, does God want Israel to sin? Well, you see, normally we think of the word jealous in a negative sense, right? And that's correct. The Bible itself even uses the term jealousy in a negative way as well. For example, in the book of Acts, Luke mentions that there were some Jews who were jealous of the success and growing influence of the apostles who were preaching the message of the gospel in Acts chapter 6. Likewise, Simon Magus became jealous of the apostles' ability to perform certain miracles and even asked to buy this power from them to which he was rightly condemned by Peter for it. And so we can see that the Bible uses jealousy in a negative way as well. But I don't think that Paul is using the word jealousy in a negative sense in our passage today, because the word jealousy is also used in a positive way in the Bible, because it can refer to both passionate anger as well as passionate love, and even God himself is referred to as a jealous God multiple times in the Old Testament. And so the word jealous in and of itself is not necessarily a negative term, not even as it relates to human beings. Let me show you what I mean. I can be jealous over my relationship with my wife in a sinful way or in a righteous way. For example, if I feel resentment or anger, if I see my wife talking to another man, that would be selfish possessive, and an unreasonable jealousy, which is sinful because it stems from my own selfishness and insecurities rather than from my commitment to my wife before God. But on the other hand, if I see um, another man actually trying to flirt with my wife or trying to seduce her in any way, then I have a right to be righteously jealous because God gave her to me as my wife. We are one flesh. And for someone else to assume that right would be a violation of God's rules for marriage. So it's not a sin for me to be jealous in this situation for the exclusiveness and purity of my marriage. No, this kind of jealousy is righteous. John Stott put it this way, whether jealousy is good or evil depends on the nature of the thing desired and on whether one has any right to possess it. If that something is in itself evil 
or it belongs to somebody else and we have no right to it, then the jealousy is sinful. But if the thing desired is in itself good, a blessing from God, which he means for his people to enjoy, then to covet it and to be jealous of those who have it is not at all sinful. You see, what God is telling us is that God's purpose for unbelieving Jews is that they would look at us Gentiles who have been saved by grace and that they would be moved to a righteous jealousy so that they would return and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as their Messiah, the one who was promised to their forefathers in the flesh. And that kind of jealousy, friends, is not sinful at all. You know, those of us who have kids probably remember a time when you asked your oldest child to go to the store with you. And they were so busy playing that they said, nah, I think I'll just stay at home. And then you ask your other child, right, would you go to the store with me? And they said, yes, daddy, sure, of course, I'll go with you. And then immediately, all of a sudden, your oldest kid said, oh, wait a minute, I want to go too. Please let me go, please. Why? Because he considered the benefits that his younger sibling would get if he went to the store while he stayed at home. You see, his jealousy motivated him to also take part in the benefits that his younger sibling had already accepted. Paul is saying that when the Jews realize the full weight of the blessings and benefits that have come to the Gentiles through their redemption in Christ, they too will be righteously jealous, greatly inspired to embrace the promises of God originally made to them through their forefathers they will be righteously jealous. Robert Haldane says, when the Jews see God's favor to the Gentiles, they will be excited to reflect on their own fallen condition and to desire to possess the same advantages. And when they can no longer hide from themselves that the God of their fathers is with the nations whom they detest, they will be led to consider their ways and be brought again into the fold of Israel. This very same hope for the future restoration of his people is why Paul said in verse 13 that he magnified his ministry to the Gentiles in order to make some of them jealous that some of them, some of his people might be saved. And this also means that we as Christians ought to strive to magnify our ministry to other people as well. As Christians, we ought to live in such a way that people see Jesus in us, in our marriages, with our children, at our workplaces, and in our extended families, so that unbelievers would be jealous about the blessings of salvation that they see in us, so that they too might be drawn to Christ. You see, the gospel is all about God's glory being reflected in and through his people. And so our goal as Christians is that every person that we come into contact with would say to themselves, you know, that person has something different about them, right? That person has something that I don't. Where do they get that inner peace, that joy, that love in their hearts for other people? Now, I want to be the first to admit that I struggle with this. And this is sad for me, right? Because oddly enough, this is exactly what happened to me before my conversion. Many of you have heard my testimony, how I came to faith when I was 26 years old. I was working at a factory at a time and dealing with all of my own sin and personal issues. When I began to notice that this 
one guy at the factory was always smiling and happy. And at first I began to despise him for it, right? Like, who does this guy think he is? Like, you know, what's his problem? Why is he so nice? But then I noticed that this guy was genuine. It's just who he was. This guy had true and genuine joy and inner peace. One day he took me out to dinner and he told me exactly why he was so happy and filled with joy all the time. It was because he had been born again and was now a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after our meeting, I jealously wanted exactly what he had. That was to know his God personally by faith. I was motivated from that point forward to do exactly that. You see, that's what Paul is saying to us today, that this is God's intention for us, for the Jews as well, that they might be moved to a righteous jealousy when they see our relationship with God and thereby they be motivated to pursue him by faith. So our goal as Christians should definitely be to reflect God's glory to others in order to make some of them jealously pursue the Savior. So the mystery of redemption involves jealousy. And lastly, the mystery of redemption, Paul says, involves the resurrection. Look at verse 12. Now, if their trespass, meaning the Jews, means riches for the world, as if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Here Paul asked the question, if Israel's sin led to reconciliation with God for the rest of the world, what will be the benefit to the rest of the world once God accepts Israel again? And then in verse 15, Paul answers this question for us by stating that the benefit that the rest of the world will gain once God accepts Israel again, will be life from the dead. Verse 15, for if their rejection means reconciliation from, of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? In other words, Paul seems to be saying that the acceptance of Israel at some time in the future by God, they're being brought back into God's fold, is somehow related to the resurrection. Now, the exact meaning of the phrase life from the dead is debated by scholars, but I do believe personally that it has reference to the end times in a sense in which when God's salvation for all of his elect is brought forth and Gentiles and Jews, the complete number is saved, Christ will return and God's kingdom will officially begin. Commenting on this very same verse, John Piper says, I take this to mean that when God's mission to the Gentiles is complete and the hardening of Israel is removed, then the Lord will come and the dead will be raised and we will all enter the kingdom with everlasting joy. So Paul seems to be saying that God's future restoration of Israel is somehow mysteriously related to the concept of resurrection and the second coming of Christ, which will be the end of this current world as we know it. And so the benefits to us will be far greater once the Jews are accepted by God. You see, Paul seems to be suggesting that God's future work of redemption is going to be even greater than his work of redemption in the past or present. 
even greater than the redemption that was taking place of the Gentiles in Paul's day. You see, the Gentiles were probably thinking to themselves, man, God sending the gospel to all the nations in the world is the greatest thing that he's ever done, right? What a plan, how great that was. Now, all of us non-Jewish people can worship Israel's Messiah as well, right? What could be greater than that? And Paul is saying, no, 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 wait a minute. God's not finished yet because there's even more to come. Because in the future, God's grace is going to surpass everything that he's done in the past, as well as everything that he is currently doing in the present. Because the grace, God's grace, is going to bring about the resurrection and everlasting joy in the presence of Christ forever. This is a very important lesson for us to learn as believers, because we have a tendency all the way, always to want to relive the past, right? The glorious day is going by to believe that the past was somehow greater than the present. And many of us who love the Reformed doctrines of grace often look back at the 16th century and the Great Awakening in America. And we think to ourselves, oh, I wish it could be like that again, right? We look back to the days of John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards and say, man, God did a great revival in those days. I wish I can partake of, of that as well. But Paul is saying that, God is going to do something even greater in the future. God is going to do something, in fact, so great that it's going to bless every redeemed Jew and Gentile alike. And isn't it interesting that in God's work of redemption, how the salvation of Gentiles ends up blessing the Jew and how the salvation of the Jews will end up blessing the Gentiles as well. You see, God designed redemption in such a way that it works for the mutual betterment of Jew and Gentile alike. And so redemption involves the future resurrection of all of God's people. Now, in conclusion, you know, I, I believe that these truths should move us as Christians to a, a practical love for the Jewish people as a whole, as well as a desire for their salvation. We should want to see them saved, and I think that we should also pray for them as often as we can remember. What it doesn't mean is that we have to take a particular stance on the nation state of Israel. No, but we should definitely be praying for their salvation. You see, the mystery of redemption is meant to be a doctrine that humbles us as Christians, right? Because it teaches us that a person's ethnicity gives them no claim on God. Salvation is totally by grace through faith alone and not based on anyone's ethnic, cultural, or religious standing. And all of this is meant to remind us that God will save only those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who do not boast in their own righteousness, whether they be Jew or Gentile. Salvation is completely of the Lord because from Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your mysterious plan of redemption, Lord, through which both Jews and Gentiles who are elect, Lord, have been saved and will be saved, Lord, in the future. Father, we pray for the salvation of the Jews, Lord, and their restoration to the God of their fathers. We also pray for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, which is near, Lord. 
we ask, Lord, that you would gather your elect from the four corners of the earth, and that you would, Christ would come and we would be ushered into your presence, Lord, for eternity. But Father, while we are on earth, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to love others, to show them the gospel in and through us, Lord, and to pray for the conversion of the Jews. Thank you so much, Lord, for sending Christ to be our Savior. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.